Uh, thanks for coming back, by the way. Um, this morning, we, 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 we uh, started with the idea that a farm is not a continuity business until it provides two salaries. So the first thing is to employ yourself, and then you're looking at creating additional salaries. And those, salar those salaries, <clears throat> I've been talking a lot today, are going to be stacked on the existing place. They're not necessarily going to be dependent on gobbling up somebody else. A lot of people say, well, how much land do you need to make a living farming? Well, you know, every time you hear about one that you think is the end of the line, then you hear about one that's even smaller, you know, like the, the quarter acre farm in Rhode Island that supports four full-time salaries on a quarter acre. It's a rose farm. They, 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 they grow and sell roses, okay? And then, you know, then the next thing you hear is some aquaponics deal, you know, that does a full-time living on a shipping container size footprint, okay? So, you know, I don't know how small this, this can go, but, but I do know that it's primarily um, creatively de creative dependent, not so much uh, land volume dependent. So once we've, once we've employed ourselves, how do we get to where we fully employ ourselves? We talked about stacking, value adding, marketing. And uh, one of the things that I'll just, I'll just mention here is that we, we have to take, A, a business approach, and B, we have to come at it from a, an, uh, an assumption of abundance and not scarcity. You know, if you're sitting there thinking, well, our farm can never, it can't even support me, let alone somebody else, you know what? You'll be really successful at accomplishing your belief, okay? It's when we come to this saying, we haven't even scratched the surface yet here, that you start seeing opportunities and things open up. So, as we develop in the farm, we need to do gross margin analysis, um, time and motion studies. Do you, know, do you know how long it takes to put on a, a remay row cover? How long does it take to dig a foot of, or 10 feet of potatoes or two pounds of potatoes? You know, how long does it take to put away eggs? And on our farm, we've done time motion studies. All, industry does this all the time. Why do farmers think that we're exempt from this? We're supposed to just get paid because we are special. I mean, farmer, farmers are the worst at assuming that because I grow food, I'm special. You know, so I need subsidies and crop insurance and everybody needs to love me and everybody needs to pay way more for their food and all this stuff. You know, we got to get out of the victimhood idea, all right? and just quit being a victim and realize we have to be the change we want to see. So we're not immune to business principles, which are things like time motion studies. You know, um, if you can't tell me um, how many cow days your grass is today, you're not taking care of business. It's one of our big things with our, you know, interns and apprentices. You know, if they're in charge of moving a group of cows, and I go and say, how many... How, much, how many square yards did you give that herd today? And they don't know. Well, then I start getting pretty irritated. Uh, because how do you make an adjustment if you don't know what you did yesterday? 
If you go out there and you, and you say, oh, I gave them about 10% too much, if you don't know how much you gave yesterday, how do you give them 10% more to, or 10% less today? Are you with me? So, so we, we, have to, we have to monitor these things. We have to do time and motion studies. We have to know where we are. Okay. So let's assume now that through value-adding, stacking, complementary enterprises, multi-speciation, complex synergistic relational uh, um, uh, enterprises, and all these things, we've now employed ourselves. Okay? So how do we, when, when we look at a team, at, at looking at our weaknesses, how do we bring on people onto our team that can, you know, that, that can do this? Now, the typical way, the typical first place of this is our children. So can I talk to you just a little bit about children? Because I don't know how many people come to me and say, how do I get my kids to like weeding carrots? How do I get my kids to like you know, gathering eggs? All right. Number one, more is caught than taught. Our children will generally become excited about the things we're excited about if we're excited about them. The average farmer is not excited about his farm. All he does is mope around all day, can't get no help. Prices are terrible. It's a conspiracy. I mean, how attractive is that to kids? So if we're excited about it, we've got to transfer the passion. You transfer the passion with excitement and a smile. Not being a complainer and a whiner. Okay? The thing is, if, if things are happening that we don't like, it doesn't do any good to whine about them. What's your action plan? Don't tell me what's wrong. Tell me how you fixed it. And we instill that can-do spirit in our children. All right? So... From day one, we instilled, made work competitive and fun. How do you do that? All right, well, you take survey ribbon, and you're going to weed, weed uh, four rows of green beans, right? So you tie a ribbon down here, and you tell your four-year-old, we're going to weed these beans. I'm going to do these two rows. If you can weed your row by the time and get to that ribbon before I do these two, you win. You ready? Start. And you start this competition now, and you turn it into a you turn it into a to a, a game. Kids love games. Adults love games. Okay? So you turn it into a game of competition. Never give time-oriented tasks. Only give task-oriented tasks. Tasks. What's he talking about? Never say go out and spend half an hour weeding the beans. That teaches your kids to dawdle. If there's no incentive for being efficient, if I pick one weed or ten weeds, i got to put them in 30 minutes, so who cares? You know, you want your kids to have piano lessons? Don't tell them to go up and practice for 30 minutes. Tell them, get this song down and you can quit. If you did it in 10 minutes, that's great. If it takes you an hour, that's great. Task-oriented, time-oriented everything is, uh, teaches dawdling, all right? So make it all task-oriented. Performance-oriented. We never gave uh, um, 
Allowances. I'm not a believer in allowances. Nobody should get you know, money for breathing. Okay. What you should do is incentivize work and things. Now, there are things that shouldn't be paid for, like you know, cleaning up your room, putting your dirty clothes in the hamper. That's the, you know, uh, that's the stuff you do because you're a member of the human family. And I think we need to make a very clear designation. Here are things that you do because you're a member of a human family. Here are things that are discretionary and you get paid for, and it's okay to ask to get paid for them. And so... Um, Task-oriented things, always task-oriented. And, and don't reward if, you know, if your four-year-old beats you in the green beans. Don't reward her by saying, oh, well, since you were so good, we'll do another row. <laughs> the reward for efficient work being done is not more work. The reward is, you know, an age-appropriate, whether it's, you know, reading a story, go, you know, fishing at the brook, Skinny dipping, whatever, okay? Um, but but age-appropriate rewards, all right? But task-oriented, that teaches efficiency. Um, when Daniel was in diapers, we'd go out and dig post holes. I have, a, I have a PhD degree, you might not know that. Post hole digger degree, okay? And we'd go out and dig post holes. Of course, he'd bring his little Tonka trucks and stuff, you know, out. And he'd play around in the, in the dirt. And, um, and he, he would... You know, he's like a little, you know, child. He whine. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. You know, I'm thirsty. No, we can't drink until we finish two more holes. That's the way I incentivize myself to, you know, to keep pushing. And I'm thirsty too. I want to, you know, but I'm going to do two more holes. Then we're going to stop for, for a drink of water. Well, he was about nine, and a neighbor boy, um, you know, as neighbor boys are wont to do, got together and they had to build a fort. Right, boys build forts. Right, and so, um, so we. He can go over to the neighbor's house and they can build this fort with this neighbor boy who's eight. He's one year younger than Daniel. About an hour and a half later, the neighbor mom calls us and says, what is it with your son? He won't let my son get a drink of water until they finish that wall of the fort. <laughs> See, more is caught than taught. See? And so we have, we have to think strategically about what we're rewarding. Praise, praise, praise. How many 50-year-olds are still encumbered from trying something new because what they did as youngsters was never good enough? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a dad thing more than a mom thing. I mean, what difference does it make if the five-year-old goes out and bends over a hundred nails today trying to pound them into a board? You know how much money I spent on those nails, kid? That's how they learn to pound them straight when they're 16. If you want a partner when you're 16, then quit complaining when they're five. Okay. 
Praise, praise, praise. You know, first time a child washes dishes, they probably miss a couple pieces. Easy thing to, to come in and instead of saying, thank you for washing those dishes, what's the first thing we say? Well, you missed a piece there. You missed it there. Praise, 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 okay? Be thankful for what they're trying to do because you're trying to inculcate a loyal partner. You know, Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he says you start with the end in view. I mean, who wants to be around a whiner and complainer all the time? Okay, We want to be around cheerleaders. See, now, I'm not saying you, you dismiss negligence and lackadaisical work, but you, you know, you're... You're age appropriate, okay, as you come up. And then the next one is to let the children develop their own enterprises. I know this was instrumental for me. When I was 10, I got my first chickens. Dad and mom, our family, we didn't have chickens. So when I got my first chickens, you know, I was the chicken man. You know, I was the chicken guru. Okay? And I had this chicken business throughout my teenage years. And I grew up cutting my teeth, grow, you know, selling at the curb market. I was up you know, uh, every single Saturday morning. It was an indoor market every single Saturday morning of the year from you know, age of about 14 to 18. Um, every single Saturday of the year, I was up at 4 o'clock to be down at curb market and sell our stuff. Um, so I, I cut my teeth on it. I wouldn't take it back for, for anything. But I had my own enterprises. Again, no allowance, but I had my own, and I always had a pocket full of money because I had my own business. That's how you teach the importance of profit, for example. Keeping records. Um, I, remember, I remember Daniel, um, he, had his, he had his three little banks on his dresser. He started his rabbits when he was eight, and he had his um, to spend, to save, and uh, tithe, offering. I remember well one time going to town and he pipes up in the back seat. He's about 10 years old. He says, man, i got to butcher some more rabbits. I don't have any money to give away anymore. What a great reason to have a business is to be able to give money away. See? Because his, his, his tithe jar was empty. See? So um, having that own business is critical. So often we, we don't we, we want to we be helicopter parents. And we're so scared, helicopter, we're hovering over them all the time, you know. Hover, hover, hover. And because we don't want our kids to hurt themselves. But how do you exercise decision-making muscles unless you make decisions? And the freedom to fail is the most exercise you can get on your decision-making muscles. It makes a big difference in a child whether visitors come and and, uh, and the child says, you know, those uh, 50 cows out there, well, two of them are mine. Makes a big difference if a person comes and the child can say, here's my enterprise and I'm the, I'm the guru. So when Daniel started his rabbits, we were real careful, visitors to the farm. Somebody had a question about rabbits. Said, I don't know anything about rabbits. There's the guru. Go ask him. So Daniel was able to take him out there, show him his rabbits, talk about that. Because he was the expert. See? 
What does this do to the self-actualization of a child? Rachel, our daughter, started a baking business when she was, you know, six years old. And, and she'd have all these garden cub ladies come and, you know, pinch her on the cheeks and say, oh, are you the little girl that made the pound cake I fed to my garden club ladies last week? And it was so wonderful. What does that do to the self-empowerment of somebody to be encouraged like that in their own business? See? And so we are real big on allowing those children to spread their wings and do their businesses. So, so task-oriented tax, tasks, incentivization, and uh, praise, 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 and their own businesses. Okay. So, so we, we, you know, we move past the children, and we take that same concept to everything else. So what we don't want is we don't want employees. We don't want wages. There's nobody on our place. We have about 20 uh, people that work with us now on the farm, on our team, and nobody gets wages. I hate wages. You know, wages are always a setup for tension between, you know, between the, the, the worker who says uh, he's, you know, working way too much and the employer who says you're spending too much time at the water cooler. There's always this tension about wages. So I like salaries, commissions, um, you know, subcontractor arrangements, so that performance gets paid for and not just showing up. Performance-oriented. Well, you know, we grew up, and I'm happy to say that both of our kids, when they were 20 years old, had $20,000 in the bank from their own earned money. Okay? It wasn't allowance. It was their own stuff. Rachel started a house cleaning business and did her baking and all this stuff. Daniel had his rabbits and he did construction and other things. We homeschooled, which freed our kids up to explore some other things. And um, that, was, that was very powerful. Well, then Daniel and Sherry got married. Now, this really throws a monkey wrench into the family business when you bring in a daughter-in-law. We just, all three of us, Daniel and Sherry and I, just got back from a, from a two-week uh, Oceania tour through uh, New Zealand and Australia doing Fields of Farmers. So I'm, I'm going to steal some of their material here this afternoon as, as I do this. And um, so, so Sherry talks about finding your place and finding your fit. See... The problem is, in family business dynamics, when a new person comes in, there's a whole lot of pre-understanding of things, a lot of water over the dam that, that you don't, you're not privy to. And it takes some time to realize all of the level of, of, of pre-understandings and things and the different jobs that people do. And so one of the things that Sherry found was that she had to look at polyface and say, okay, you know, mom's taking care of that, and dad's taking care of that, and Daniel's taking care of that, and Aunt Donna's taking care of that, and you know, niece Heidi's taking care of that. And what can I do? And and she will tell you if she were here today, you know, she went through this little period of time of feeling sorry for herself. Where do I fit in? And then she realized one day, I can never be any of them and I can't do their jobs. What do we need that I can do? At the time, we were selling to these metropolitan buying clubs. 
Now, this is basically a, a fancy way of saying an urban scheduled drop point. We don't do any farmer's markets. Um, and before you go off and say, I hate farmer's markets, let me just say, I think that they are a very inefficient way for product to change hands. Um, my rule of thumb is, if you're not making $2,000 per farmer's market trip, you do a lot better doing something else. Okay? Um, farmer's markets have a lot of rules and regs. Uh, they're, they, they're speculative. Uh, you can only sell what you take. And so people are limited. Uh, and you have to pack it all up when you get home. What do you do with damaged stuff? People handling it and going through it. And, um, and they're, they're, it's, it's like a soap opera sometimes. I don't think he grew that. Are you sure she grew that? You know, it's all this little you know, stuff going on behind the scenes. And of course, you know, it's really a glorified social gathering. Um, you know, if people actually bought all their food at a farmer's market, it'd be sold out in 20 minutes. But you know, most people can only buy what they can carry in one hand because the other hand is holding on to you know, uh, a properly pampered and coiffed Fifi the dog, you know. And, um, and, and, and they, they don't buy bushels of butternut squash. They buy a special little baby food jar with a pretty little orange ribbon on it of, you know, butternut squash puree, you know, for bisque. And uh, so they can, you know, anyway. There's a lot of any fit. Now, if you've got one that you're earning $2,000 a trip, more power to you. That's a great market. Go for it, Okay. But if you're not, ask yourself the question, if I spent the hours that I send at, spend at farmer's market, if I spent that creating my own marketing scheme and brand label, where would I be? And I would suggest that most of the time we'd be way farther ahead, which that's exactly what we did. So um, what, we, what happened was we had, these, we had these ladies coming down to the farm from Maryland, four hours away. And it was a ladies' day out, you know. Some people go play bridge and golf. These ladies went on a on a, a, a food uh, expedition, and um, they would, you know, ladies' day out. They would come down. They would stop at a few um, antique stores on the way down through the valley, see if there was anything there that the Yankees hadn't uh, carried off. And um, then they'd stop for lunch in Stanton, come on out to the farm, and they'd, you know, buy stuff. They'd come about once a quarter. They'd call the day before, and uh, we call them the Maryland ladies. And they'd come in with these little rolly coolers, you know, and go in there and. And um, go to the freezers, you know. And most people, they, they pick stuff out of the freezer shelves, right? You know, but these ladies didn't. I mean, they opened the door, kicked their cooler up against it, and just start raking it out, you know, blah, 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 you know, out of the, throw that in the side, put it on. I mean, these ladies spent like 800 bucks every visit. We kind of grew to like these Maryland ladies. <laughs> About 18 months into this, one of them pulled me aside and said, uh, you know, uh, we have a lot of friends. I think I'd like to meet your friends. But we've tried to get them to come down with us, and, and, you know, but they've got soccer and deacons meetings and all that. You know, they, they're just too busy. What would it take for you to come to us? Well, I didn't want to go you know, beating the pavement to them. So you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do? I said, well, I guess if you got $3,000 in product sales, you know, I'll come to you. I figured that would shut them up. 
What I didn't know was, was that the senior of these four ladies was one of these um, inner city, know thyself, ooh, you know, yin, yang, uh, woo, get in touch with your inner being. Written about six books, you know. And um, she was a guru, you know. So the next week at class, she told her disciples, um, I found our food. Here's where you sign up. The next day on Thursday, she calls me and says, we got your $3,000 worth of product. What do you, you know, when are you coming? <laughs> what do you do? Drive, baby. <laughs> and that birthed the Metropolitan Buying Clubs. Now, delivery becomes a big issue. I'm setting a stage for something here that's really critical. Delivery becomes a big issue. It is one of, distribution is one of the biggest weak links right now in the local food system. We can grow it, but how do you, how do you get economies of scale and efficiency in getting it from my farm to the customer? You know, and we all know about the supermarket system. That seems to be so efficient. But you know, how, do we, how do we do this now? And so back when we started with restaurants, we made a one of the best decisions we ever made was if we were going to be in the distribution business, we need to carve that out as a separate business. The temptation is to wrap everything up under one umbrella. But when you think about business acquisitions and subcontracting and how the business world works, it really is very segmented. I mean, you've got freelance I'm looking at videographers here. You've got freelance sound guys and gals, freelance videographers. You've got, you know, uh, 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 freelance marketers. And all these people, they, they create um, sometimes long-term, but many times short-term alliances, create little, you know, short-term contracts, and, and work together as a team, and then they realign the team later, okay? And, and that's the way the business world works. So I want us to think about that with a local food distribution system. We carved out a delivery by the pound system in order to truly track the costs of our delivery system. I don't know a farm in the country that's running a delivery system that buries the delivery cost in their product that's honest about the cost of delivery. Every single one of them is subsidizing the delivery from the farm gate price. Because none of us is honest enough to look ourselves in the mirror and realize how expensive putting that truck on the road is. And, so, and I, wanted, I wanted wiggle room to be able to carve that off as a separate business anytime I wanted to. And by having the delivery cost separate, we do that with our chefs. The chefs don't like it. Cisco doesn't do that. You know, they've all got exotic voices because they've been trained in some chalet in the Swiss Alps. You know, what is this the delivery charge? You know, and, uh, and, and, and our response is, well, we, you know, we want you to be informed about the cost of getting it to your doorstep. Now, if you want to come to the farm and get it, you know, you can get it at the price, and, and, and that's great. But if you want to deliver to your doorstep, we want you to understand how much it gets to be there, because we don't want ignorant shifts. About that time, you're like, oh, that's fine. I don't want to be ignorant either. That's fine. Just bring it on, you know. And, and it's all done. So you, you, know, you, you spin it, 
You don't apologize for the inconvenience or for the differences. Instead, you educate and use the difference as a loyalty leverage. I'm doing this for your benefit, so you'll be the smartest chef in the country. See? And what it enabled us to do was as soon as that restaurant business built up enough, we were able to carve that off as a, as a one afternoon a week, $100, this is going back you know, 25 years, $100 a week, three-hour um, job for somebody. Well, there are a lot of people that would love to work one afternoon a week for three hours for 100 bucks. Okay? And so, in our businesses, what I'm trying to get to is we want to structure them. We want to, from the outset, we want to structure them so that we can create short-term and long-term alliances with people who take ownership as subcontractors so we don't have a bunch of employees. When Sherry came to the farm, she realized that one of our, um, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so, so we did these Metropolitan Buying Clubs. So we had several subcontractors over there, and about the time Daniel and Sherry got married, our current subcontractor decided to go do something else. And uh, um, it was only, you know, like 30, 40 families or something. It took, you know, an afternoon a month. It was a great for, a, you know, a young, uh, well, a, a new mom, and, and it was good for her. And so we said, well, what are we going to do? And she, and she, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, if she were telling this, it would be so much better because she did some marketing as a teenager and, you know, she was homeschooled as well. So she had opportunities to, you know, get her feet dabbled with different things that institutional education doesn't let you do. And she, she was very self-confident about her ability to market. And she loves marketing. You know, one of the biggest, most amazing discoveries in the world is when you realize, you know that job that you just can't stand to do? You know, there's a couple things that you just really don't like to do. Do you know that there are people on this planet that love to do that stuff? I mean, they just, they just can't wait to get up in the morning and make more cold calls. Ah! That's like a root canal without Novocaine. But there are people who thrive on that. So I hope one of the big takeaways from my presentations today is to understand the, the breadth and depth of what we have to do to have continuity farm businesses, but to realize you don't have to do it all. All we have to do is design the system so that other people will be drawn to the things that we're not good at, that we don't like to do. I went to a conference once. It was a great little uh, pictograph. You know, three circles with you know, an intersection of the three. One is what you're good at. One is what you love. And one is what you know. And where what you're good at, what you love, and what you know, where they intersect, that's your sweet spot. And so all of our life needs to be trying to move closer and closer and closer so that we get rid of the stuff that are outside of that, and we focus ourselves on where those three intersect. You got that? What we're good at, what we know, and what we love. Okay? When we leverage those three things and they all come together, 
That's our sweet spot. And so one of the, one of the beauties of, of uh, accounting is that it allows you to track margins and track different enterprises. And so, you know, believe it or not, our P&L statement, our profit and loss statement is 14 pages. I mean, Jackie, our accountant, you know, she says, Man, I've never seen one this long. Well, why is it so long? Because we categorize everything. That way you can track your margins on every single enterprise. If you can't track your margins on every single enterprise, what happens is we have some that are very lucrative and some that are losing, and you don't know where you are. You might end up, you know, growing the one that's losing you the most money instead of you know, uh, uh, putting emphasis on the one that's really carrying the ball game. And so when Sherry came, it was, uh, we had the Metropolitan Buying Clubs that were available. So she said, I'll do it. She was looking at her love of marketing and her interest in Internet and that development. And so Sherry started in whatever it was, 2007, I guess, something like that. And she has taken the Metropolitan Buying Clubs from 30 families to over 5,000 families. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And here's the secret. We didn't know if Sherry could sell. I mean, we loved her. She was our daughter-in-law. I mean, she was, I mean, she, you know. Of all the girls that Daniel ever, you know, brought around, she was the one that Teresa and I would have picked. So, I mean, we were very, it's not like we were displeased with the, you know, with the pick, okay? But she didn't have a track record with us. Now, if we'd have put her on wages or a salary, said, okay, you can do this for, you know, $10,000 a year or fifteen or whatever or five or one. We didn't know whether she'd bomb. She didn't have a track record. So what we did, we put her on a commission, a sales commission. All the sales that come in from the Metropolitan Buying Clubs, she gets 3% every single sale. Now, when she started, it was a few bucks. Today, she's created a very, very comfortable passive income for herself. Okay? She still does it. But she still does it at that 3% commission. So by putting it on a commission and not a wage or salary, it freed both parties up in a bit of a, eh, you know, a, a, a non-track, little bit of a trust situation to be able to go. Fortunately, she was confident enough to take the commission and say, yeah, I'm going to show them. And she did it, and you know, my goodness, we've been trying to run, keep up with her ever since. Because we had no idea what we had. I mean, she, she'd rather, you know, market than just about anything. Okay? She eats it and loves it. Okay? And so it was the, the commission-based approach 
that enabled the two kind of, you know, circling parties to be able to create room to build a relationship. Everybody follow that? That's really critical. 